Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk Podcast, where we discuss the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm your host, Ian Bolland, Acting Group Editor of Life Sciences at Rapid News Group. And on this episode, I'm joined by Arnav Chatterjee, Senior Vice President, Product and Ecosystem at Medidata, to discuss the use of artificial intelligence in clinical trials, as well as other areas of life sciences. Please note there will be a short break in this episode for a word from our sponsor, Wilmington Healthcare, a small excerpt of our discussion on their State of the Nation report. Well, first of all, Arnab, can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So thanks for uh, having me on um, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I, um, yeah, I guess I can start off on a personal note and say that, um, you know, medicine, healthcare are kind of embedded within my family and in my DNA. Um, you know, I come from a, a line of physicians and, and researchers and um, that goes back multiple generations now. So I Grew up um, kind of with stories of different, you know, patient encounters and um, how to think about, you know, the patient-physician interaction. And these were dinner table conversations. But, you know, from my own perspective, um, I've been uh, kind of sitting at different points of the healthcare spectrum now for, I guess, the last 12, 13 years. Um, worked in different capacities in um, consulting and pharma, um, in academia and in government. Um, and I think the the interesting part of this is I've kind of been part of, you know, these pivotal changes or what I think are kind of tectonic shifts within our healthcare system that have really informed kind of how I think about the way the system's evolving and how I think about, you know, the topic today around AI. Um, so an example of some of these movements, you know, in a, in a previous life, I was um, heavily involved in, in policy legislation and, and working on the Affordable Care Act here in the U.S. And, you know, how specifically data was going to better inform um, how the Centers for Medicare Medicaid could help with fraud and abuse, right? And and this is like a, an interesting way to think about data in a policy and a government lens and, and standing up legislation to actually support that. Um, you know, similarly, I, um, you know, currently teach on health policy and kind of look at the intersection of tech and health policy is kind of inextricable at this point. They're, they're really tied together. And, and this is um, an, another perspective I'm thinking about. So, you know, examples of different movements. Um, you know, I was previously at Merck as well and um, worked uh, on Keytruda, you know, which is kind of a, an all important uh, oncology asset, um, you know, but the idea was how do we also bring in real world data um, to inform our understanding of, you know, how we can describe and, and build models um, outside of clinical trials that could, you know, tie to outcomes and, and patient improvement and efficacy of the drug. And, you know, the entire immuno-oncology movement or tectonic shift in, in clinical development was just another example of something I was fortunate to be part of. Um, and then most recently, prior to Medidata, I was with McKinsey and um, I had a chance to work with uh, some big companies on the West Coast that were using AI to think about data science and how to go to market. And, you know, these are also kind of movements in their own way as you think about the um, increasingly... Um, I guess, pervasive world of, of how we're bringing together tech and, and our healthcare system and, and what does it mean for us to have AI models that inform things like clinical decision making. So all in all, you know, this kind of ties into what I do right now, which is oversee our, our data science, um, you know, company for, for Metadata and, and how that all comes together within clinical trials and operations and, and the entire um, development world. There's a, there's a lot I want to unpack there. I really do want to unpack the uh, the policy side of it, but I think that's for another podcast. In all honesty, because <laughs> I think people have had a, an, enough about me talking about politics coming onto this podcast. But I think we'll come back to that one day. So uh, make, make a note of that. But first of all, it, you, when you said that it became 
something like a dinner, a regular dinner table conversation when in your family around around healthcare. How much did AI factor in that? Because I think it's fair to say over the past few years, even though it's probably not necessarily a new thing, it feels like a new thing with the way that people talk about it. Yeah, it's you know I think there's a um, there's still I think a a pretty large disparity on like how evolved these conversations have become, right? And you know, even yesterday, I, I saw something at our science museum here in Boston about, you know, how AI is going to um, change lives, right? And, and what does it mean for humanity, right? And this to me is a conversation I think that's been happening for 50 years now or longer, right? Um, and you could argue it's just getting more and more tailored to how we see advances in computing change the way that we think about the applications in our lives. Um, going back to my dinner table conversations, you know, I think it was um, much more less evolved in some ways, but it was actually very much in the technology realm where, you know, my dad was actually um, one of the first people to use electronic medical record systems at his hospital, you know, and he was um, in charge with some of the implementation and thinking about how that informed physician decision making as he's a physician um, person, physician by training himself. And he was wondering, like, what is this going to do for the way that doctors enter information and how they think about that information for downstream patient outcomes? So you could argue it wasn't, quote unquote, AI, but a lot of that was the foundational layer on which we're talking about AI right now, you know, so maybe it was a precursor to everything that we're seeing right now. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it, because there's there's so many, I mean, for example, the, the electronic patient records that we, st- we still get pictures for that for our websites in terms of, because, but I think that's more to do with how the healthcare system operates here and, and willingness for adoption. So, but if we can, I think that actually nicely leads us on to what can AI be used for now and how has it changed over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, for example. Yeah, and I think this is where um, you have to remember kind of like how the origin of this worked within healthcare, right? So I can think of a few different examples of of where we see this as, um, you know, kind of a a more omnipresent part of the way that we think about um, AI's use and, and in different applications within healthcare. But if you remember kind of like the pioneering use cases of this, um, you know, started with uh, facial or pattern or object recognition in imaging, right? And everyone now references the uh, Chihuahua and, and Blueberry Muffin diagram, you know, at this point um, where you can kind of understand, you know, what's what and how can computers, you know, figure that out more accurately. But, you know, in the imaging world for uh, healthcare, you know, this is rapidly growing. Um, you know, it's still a relatively small AI facilitated imaging is still kind of a small portion of the overall diagnostic imaging market, which is enormous, you know, several tens of billions of dollars, which encompasses equipment and software and services. But, you know, a lot of these really amazing lighthouse use cases for AI actually originated, um, you know, and continue to originate uh, within the imaging industry. So if you think about improving and increasing diagnostic accuracy or personalizing treatment plans, um, if you think about ultimately improving clinical outcomes that are linked to a machine's ability to read an image more accurately, that is still kind of um, the area where we're seeing a lot of growth. And, you know, there's been pretty pretty important movements, you know, within um, ophthalmology, within pathology, within uh, radiology, where we'll continue to have these discussions around you know, better reads and, and reducing time and increasing efficiency, but also how does that tie into our ability to, um, you know, improve the ultimate clinical decision-making process, which is not a binary yes or no decision, but it's a multitude of different factors. Um, and this is another example, you know, as you, as you think about this is like AI is now, I think, contributing to um, understanding treatment progression as an example. And, you know, there's 
a lot of prognostic variables that help us better understand progression of disease and, and predicting earlier onset of disease. Um, we've seen several case studies now and um, a lot of published literature and peer-reviewed literature around doing this accurately. Um, sepsis is a very good example where you've seen tens of thousands of patients who are evaluated against um, you know, multiple clinical measures to predict uh, septips, uh, sepsis onset within a certain time frame, you know, 12, 8, 6, 4 hours. And I think um, AI-driven models here have really gotten accurate. They've gotten much better. Um, the validation cohorts are almost indistinguishable from the uh, original patients, you know. So I think these are kind of two big areas. Um, one last area is kind of like what we can see in, in you know, kind of the clinical trial space. And, and this is really the world that I live in. Um, getting better at using AI on real world data or historical data to predict trial success and trial failure, I think is going to be one of the next big frontiers for drug development. So these are three kind of key things where if you take a lot of really well-organized data, it has made some pretty big shifts in healthcare already. Okay. And there's actually one or two things I want to pick up on there. First of all is the data aspect, because it seems to me that AI is probably synonymous with uh, with data. And is, is it all... It's always the case that the more data, the better. And and secondly, when you actually touched upon the uh, the diagnostics space that AI operates in, for given the diagnostics is such a vast space, is, is is AI punching above its weight in terms of how much of that space it's occupying? Mm, good questions. Yeah. So um, to your first question around like is more data better, um, I don't necessarily think it has to be. Um, I think for some time, you know, especially within, you know, the larger technology companies, um, everyone, there was and continues to be a bit of a data arms race, right, in terms of trying to aggregate and, and just give me all of the stuff and I'll figure out what to do with the model, right? And now I think increasingly, um, you're really starting to pressure test um, certain aspects of data. So data quality, data um richness, um, you know, having an epidemiologically representative population. So more isn't necessarily better, but like the quality, the rigor of the data collection um, arguably is more important as it informs AI models, right? And I think, you know, in the imaging sector, you know, where you have kind of like 90% of healthcare data being created, um, there is a need for lots of images. There is a need for not only the images itself, but the outcomes that the images are tied to. Right. So you really have to dimensionalize the, the, the quality aspect of this. Otherwise, the more data piece doesn't really help you all that much. And that's just kind of a, a personal perspective. Um, you know, I think the other thing to think about is um, the, mess, the messiness of healthcare data continues to be a challenge for AI. Right. Because the vast majority, I think 80 percent of, of data is unstructured, you know, within clinical data right now. And, you know, what do you make sense of that? How do you kind of better build on top of um, unstructured data that will give you more understanding of what's happening within these clinical encounters? So, you know, just because you have volume doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, better. It just means it'll take longer to train and that you need to contextualize that data. Um, and then kind of going back to your second question around, you know, diagnosis and diagnostics, um, I think you're right to a point where there is a bit of a predict everything and boil the ocean mentality, um, you know, and this is where it really does tie into like, where do you see rich information being used to inform these models? You know, and this is where like the sepsis example is a good one, because I do think that, you know, the training data itself has gotten better. I think that we're seeing, 
you know, more and more um, commonality in the models, meaning that people are starting to use quality data and seeing similar results. So the more you can test the algorithm's accuracy, the more you're having representative patient populations, the better. I don't think you're going to see AI as a silver bullet for all prediction models moving forward for diagnostics, right? I think it works in certain cases where you're able to kind of prove, um, you know, that the value of the cohorts um, can be replicated and that you're seeing similar models and, and similar or incrementally better predictions. And now for a word from the podcast sponsor. Within all of this, and I know we predominantly focused on medtech, but we are the MedTalk podcast, so we, we do delve into the pharma side of things as well. Mm. Um, there was a couple of really striking and uh, statistics, including the increase in spend on antidepressants, and a large area of spending in primary care is in, is in diabetes drugs. We, there was also a sharp rise in the spend on statins as well. Mm. We, to me, the layperson that, that, that sees that a mental health crisis unfolded as as a result of COVID. Yeah. Um, the, the antidepressants increased. Uh, Though striking, it doesn't surprise me. But was there anything in those areas that surprised you? Well, the data that we were looking at showed quite clearly what the pandemic specifically had done to prescribing. So it mm-hmm. wasn't just overall prescribing trends, but it was what had happened over 2020 and 21. Uh-huh. So just for example, like diabetes was a big area of spend, but diabetes has always been a big area of spend. And we've had a diabetes epidemic going back to at least the beginning of this century in terms of increased spend on, on medicines. But it was the the antidepressants, statins to a degree. and But for me, it was also gastrointestinal drugs um, that that spiked during the pandemic that I found newsworthy. Um, so the, the biggest one was antidepressants, obviously. And the story did seem to be when we followed it up with GPs um, in Health Service Journal that published an exclusive on it. Um, uh, it was all about mental health issues and that the pandemic had caused large uh, numbers of of people to experience depression and anxiety and other mental disorders um but also the lack of exercise um the staying in did have an impact on statin prescribing perhaps i don't you can't sort of say there's a causal link there but over that time there's a correlation yeah there's there's some kind of connection um, and the same with gastrointestinal if there's no connection at all between sitting on the sofa and not being able to go out, why is it those particular categories? Um, so it is to do with you know, less exercise, less healthy um, lifestyles that we're living, in in my unclinical opinion. Um, but that's, that's what seemed to be uh, what the data was suggesting. And that was a word from our sponsor, Wilmington Healthcare. Now, back to the episode. Okay, I mean, you you were speaking before the clinical trials is your home when it comes to AI. Um, You've actually talked about a lot of things surrounding that, but let's come on to your specialist area. What kind of effect is AI actually having in the clinical trial space at the moment? Yeah, so if you think about um, kind of the the whole life cycle of drug development, um, there's sort of the earliest stages of you know the preclinical. you know, translational side of, of the world. And 
I'll start there because um, that's really where you're seeing a ton of different things take place. Um, you know, so there's a number of different companies where, um, you know, who are using kind of deep learning and AI to, you know, basically mine and take vast quantities of, of complex scientific data and use that as the basis for target identification um, for better kind of isolating, um, you know, which compound or, or how to think about a molecule structure. Um, and you're basically trying to predict which compounds are going to be more efficient in targeting a specific disease, right? So there's been quite some significant breakthroughs here. I think we're going to, you know, there's a, a range in how people talk about this, where in, in some cases you're making a more efficient process for something like ligand screening. In other cases, you're actually helping discover a new molecule, right? And I think it's just important to understand like how we talk about AI in that context, but it is where you see a lot of money and a lot of effort being dedicated. Um, a second area is kind of in drug repurposing, right? So can you use these um, AI technologies to take unstructured data, mine it, understand the relationships um, between a molecule and a specific disease? And, you know, I think that's an important area as well, where increasing amounts of real world data are feeding into that, along with a lot of the data that pharma companies currently sit on. Um, the area that I'm pretty excited about is like, you know, how you think about this in the context of kind of like the phase one and the phase three world. And what's cool about this is that um, you can think about like a clinical trial as having sort of a set of factors that are really important to think through. And within those factors, for example, you want to better understand the design of the trial. Um, you want to understand sort of the biology of that trial. You want to think about, you know, what factors might have contributed to the success of previous trials. Um, you want to look at the outcomes. Um, you want to think about kind of the uh, you know, the, the characteristics of the sponsor itself, um, you know, and all the stuff that goes into a trial and a protocol itself. So endpoints and IE criteria and comparators and biomarkers. And why I'm saying all this is because if you can take all of that information and feed it into a model where you can actually drill down with greater accuracy, like what is contributing to a greater probability of success for a trial, that I think is a really cool battleground, you know, for AI. And I think an area where you can significantly enhance, um, you know, drug development. So I think uh, making sharper predictions on clinical trial success, um, whether it's on the operational side or on the clinical side, is is an area where you can you can make a significant dent. And and we've been pretty active in a lot of that work. Okay, I mean, I think you've actually touched upon what excites you about it because uh, thank you for taking one of my questions away there. <laughs> so I mean, it probably leads nicely on to. The, the future but also it, i think when the topic of ai comes up people get confused that it's a case of person replacement shall we say but from what you've described it feels like there's still very much a role for the for the human in there for, for overseeing ai yeah 100 percent. right like i i think um the debate on you know, robots versus AI and and humans in that entire um, equation, I think, is going to be continuous, right? And I think, um, you know, some of the earliest stuff has been informed by how much has AI really augmented a scientist or a physician's capabilities, as an example, right? Um, you know, uh, publications in JAMA have kind of already spoken to, um, like, diagnostic assessments of metastatic breast cancer and, you know, who does it better, how far have we come in machine learning? Um, 
at the end of the day, like it goes back to something I was saying that these are not binary tasks, right? Like there's thousands of micro decisions that kind of go into each of these. And, and that applies to clinical trials. It also applies to, um, you know, clinical care decisions. And I think what is helpful is like, you know, we're not going to replace, you know, the scientific process or the physician decision anytime soon. It, to me, it's still augmenting, right? And Improving diagnostic accuracy benefits everyone. I think improving probability of success in a clinical trial benefits everyone. The human in the loop process is still critical to me, right? It's it's not not something that we can independently let models make decisions for us at this juncture, because there is a ton underneath each of this. Similarly, um, until we reach consistency and, and portability in model development, we're still a long way from integration. Right. So it's going to take us some time to get stuff into the actual process of making these decisions, whether it's within the trial itself or within um, the hospital and the clinicians uh, workflow. Yeah, the, the way I've always seen it is that it's, it's, a, it's support, really. I mean, and, and as a result, technology continues to evolve. The human beings are going to be the ones that help evolve it. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for agreeing with me. I almost feel intelligent now. <laughs> so, can we just come on to a little bit about the future? Is that do you see the future of AI continuing in pretty much the same vein as it has done for the past few years, or are there further advancements that are coming down the track that probably people like me just haven't even thought of? Well, so let's start with kind of the near term, right? And and I'll reflect on some of the stuff that I think we'll see in the next, you know, one, three years, uh, maybe five years. Um, so I, I think I'll talk about sort of the one year world. And let me go back to the world I'm familiar with in clinical trials for a second here. So, you know, I think um, on the operational side, you know, there's a ton that can be done yesterday and today, right, in terms of how you can use this data to inform diversity and recruitment, for example, which is a really hot button topic right now, and making sure that we are enrolling the right patient populations and using different machine learning models to actually reinforce, you know, are the right patients getting to the right sites? How can we predict where they're going to enroll and how that's going to happen? Um, And I think this is an important part of kind of the way we see treatments being applied to different types of patients. and also just increasing the representation of the number of people we get within trials and the types of people we get within trials. So there's a really important battleground, again, for, for AI in clinical trial ops. On the development side, and this is, again, a one-year perspective, like I go back to, you know, can we unlock this idea of using not even, you know, deep learning methods, but just better prediction models around, you know, how do we get clinical trial success to be better? And I think what's been really you know, in in some ways frustrating is that we're still living in a world where, you know, the average time to take a drug to market is, you know, 14 years, you know, 50% of late stage clinical trials are failing due to bad drug targeting um, or inefficacy. Um, I think you're seeing like 15% of drugs go from phase two to approval. It's really, you know, it's really a very vital place for AI to make an impact. So some of the work that we're thinking about is like, you know, using data to predict patients who will have um, certain kinds of outcomes and leveraging machine learning and AI models to find various patterns in their behavior so that we can say these are patients that should be part of your trial or not part of your trial. These are all like today table stake activities in my mind. Um, You know, I think looking maybe one, two years ahead, um, it's not only about the models and the AI and the tech evolving, it's also about people's willingness to accept them. 
So if you think about some of these deeply entrenched cultures um, in terms of how they might accept new methodology or new models, if you think about regulatory bodies and how they think about the acceptance of these things, that I think will actually take a little bit longer versus how far advanced the tech is going to come. So a good example of this is like um, the world of building, you know, synthetic patients or replica patients, right? And deep learning has gotten really good um, at simulating patient outcomes, you know, building better understanding of comparator drugs. Um, we've built models on our side that are almost 100% accurate, replicating the source data, right? And this has been validated by different uh, organizations, peer-reviewed literature. Um, so the tech is going to check out. Now you have to convince you know, pharmaceutical companies or regulatory bodies that these models accurately simulate what's going to happen to patients within a trial and how the importance of that, the ethics of that to save time and money and impact on patients is worth the risk in the model itself, right? If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I'm trying to um, look at sort of the human side of all this, as well as kind of people's willingness to, to accept that these are going to become part of our lives. And that to me is sort of like the one to two to five year vision of, of how we have to think about, you know, the acceleration of this, because I do think we're going to get better with the data and with the model development itself. I think it's going to be um, a bit of a learning curve in terms of how that gets processed. Uh, I'm glad you actually mentioned the, the, the human element there, because I think the worry that I come across from, well, from, from just a lay person, really, who, who suggests, well, what happens when doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, yep. how, 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 do you, how do you back it up, for example? No, look, I, I think, and, and this is where when you're dealing with human health, it is a really um, delicate balance to strike, right? Like when you're trying to make a point that um, this technology could, you know, literally save lives by, for example, reducing the um, amount of time it takes for a patient to enroll in a trial um, in cases like oncology and rare diseases, people are dying in the trials themselves, right? So you are talking about life and death situations. Now, to go back to, you know, how do you kind of, you know, make sense of this and what do you process and how do you accept it? I think it's a balance. It's one where you have to prove um, through not just like, I, I think this is a world where like tech alone isn't going to be able to do it. You have to do this with the scientific community. You have to get patient advocacy groups behind it. It requires a consortium of different organizations to support something like this in order to convince hearts and minds that, you know, the approach is worth pursuing. And I think, um, you know, this is where you have to kind of build these alliances uh, over time so that you're gaining trust from different parties kind of showing the value of the technology and then saying or making a case to, um, you know, individuals or, or pharmaceutical companies or, um, or uh, you know, regulators that, you know, this is what the potential is. Here's the willingness to support it. Do you accept this methodology at this point in time? And yeah, look, yeah, I mean, yeah. like you can argue uh, just thinking about some of the advances in things like mRNA vaccines, you know, we're taking leaps of faith. We're trying to show a quick and expedient way of doing something you know, typically vaccines require several years of safety data, and we did it in the course of a year, right? So it's not like it's impossible. These advances have the potential to move quickly if you can get enough stakeholder buy-in and you show kind of uh, a burning platform for it. I think you basically answered my next question there. So thanks for that. And that leaves me all out of questions on. Well, thank you very much for your time today. If there's anything else you'd like to add, feel free to, uh, uh, to say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't trying to read tea leaves here or anything. So, <laughs> I mean, I do want to, I do want to go back to like, um, 
<clears throat> I talked about like the excitement within the space, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there were kind of a few things I was thinking about in the course of our conversation, like one of which is, um, you know, going back to acceptance, right? So like the idea of the FDA approving algorithms or the EMA approving algorithms is super interesting because, you know, right now, um, can you, you know, the FDA has approved, uh, you know, close to 40 or 50 different algorithms, mostly in the med device space, right? And, you know, I think as methodology gets better, as you're seeing the value of the algorithms before and after they're taken to market, there's a bunch of different examples where the regulatory bodies are giving sort of the positive nod towards these things moving forward, right? And, and being embedded in decision uh, support software. And I think, um, you know, diabetic retinopathy and the cardiovascular space, you're seeing a ton of this where computer-aided detection and diagnosis is going to be a bigger part of our lives. So I think that is something that's really interesting to me and, and one we have to follow closely where I do think they're going to accept certain things. And as that relates to clinical development, drug development, they might improve, uh, you know, accept some of these methods around, um, you know, synthetic patient generation, for example. Um, the one other area I think that is worth following is... Um, these big policy groups that are and policy and legislation efforts that are actually making AI part of their day to day. So the American Medical Association became uh, this was maybe a year or two ago, like the first major physician organization in the US that actually issued policy recommendations on AI and medicine. Um, you know, they're talking about how physicians can make this as part of their professional growth and their development. How do you think about integrating, um, you know, physician decision-making into design and validation and implementation of healthcare in the U.S. using AI. So, you know, there's that initiative and the federal government is already doing a lot of thinking around AI. They've brought together different stakeholders, um, you know, and I think these are all part of a larger push um, towards standards and, and ways for us to think about creating consistency in, in the way that it's being used. So, those might not sound as exciting as some of the other things I said, but, you know, this is an important um, tying back to my policy roots. I think this stuff has to change, too, in order for the AI to be more real. Yeah, I think you're preaching to the converted there on the uh, on the policy element. But uh, you heard it here first, everybody. That's what you've got to look out for, according to Arnold. But thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate, uh, thank you so much.